please stand for our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Well, let's... Uh Lift up our hearts to the Lord. Jesus, we love you more than we could ever tell you. And we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're not incidental to the church. You're not um, a piece of religious iconography on the wall somewhere, but you're the sum and substance of this. And that we are here at all is not by our own volition, but it's because you went in front of us and you drew us here. Already, hearts are responding to your love and to your grace. We thank you for that. We thank you that wherever there is doubt or unfaith or hurt or brokenness in this place, already you are pouring the oil of your gladness on it. You're soothing it and you're causing it to come back to life. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the alpha and the omega. Jesus, the beginning and the end. Jesus, the first and the last. Jesus, who is dead and is alive. And he holds the keys of death and hell. Everything bows to you. And we couldn't be more grateful than we are right now to be called your people. Wake us up, we pray, to more of your goodness and more of your love. We thank you for these ancient words, the words of Psalm 23, that open up a window to the kingdom for us. We pray that they would be for us the very word of God that draws us even further into the kingdom of God. We're praying this morning that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you that don't know, my name is Andrew. I'm a teaching pastor with New Life Friday Night. I was here a couple weeks ago preaching, and there were 11 of us here and uh, <laughs> during the snowstorm. It was a wonderful time, though, but I just, I love what's happening here. It was so fun to walk in at 9.15 this morning and watch Pastor Joe leading the volunteer room downstairs and you all praying together and talking about the things that are happening. And the worship here this morning was so ridiculously powerful. So Sarah Martin and team, thanks for your leadership here. Um, I'm sure that to some of you, you know, a room of 60 or 70 here feels like a small thing, but as, um, as you know, it's not a small thing in Manitou Springs. And Pastor Brady will always talk about um, how there's a beachhead for the kingdom of God in Manitou Springs because of you guys and what you're doing. So keep up the good work. It's amazing. Uh, Psalm 23 this morning. Holy smokes. 
Like, is there a better, more, um, more sort of iconic psalm in the book of the Psalms than Psalm 23? If there is, I don't know what it would be. And uh, I have four little kids, uh, Ethan, Gabe, Isabella, and Liam, and I can't be certain of this, but I think that Psalm 23 was the first scripture that we learned together as a family. And probably once a day in some way, Psalm 23 comes up. It has this, and for good reason, it's poetically so inspiring, it's, it's succinct, it's beautiful, and it has this way of sort of opening up the imagination to who God is and to how the world works. And so, um, so I wanna walk you through Psalm 23 and talk about who God desires to be for us on the basis of what David has laid out for us. So let's begin with verse one here, what we just read a minute ago. The scripture says, the Lord is my shepherd. David was a shepherd, so for him, this imagery really resonated and, and he could speak this from his own experience. The Lord is my shepherd. The Hebrew is Yahweh Roi. Yahweh Roi. He is the one watching out for me. And therefore, I lack nothing. So the immediate implication of God's identity as the shepherd is that David knows no lack. Now, David is not some highfalutin prosperity preacher out there, okay? He's just flying around in a private jet all the time, all right? David had a really tough experience for a lot of his life. So for him to say this, for him to claim this in some absolute sense is already very, very interesting because David knew the peaks of life and he also knew the valleys of life really well. And in the midst of the peaks and the valleys, David was able to say, Yahweh Roi, Yahweh my shepherd, therefore, I don't lack anything. I don't have any needs. He makes me, David says, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. The Hebrew there is literally, he causes my nephesh to return to me. In the ancient Hebrew text, the word nephesh, which we commonly translate as soul, um, when we think of soul, we mean the immaterial part of us usually, right? Like something like our personality. That's part of it in the Hebrew understanding. Really, the nephesh is the human person seen in the totality of their being. So literally what David is saying is that it's not just that you refresh my soul, like I went on a solitude retreat and now I'm better, but he's saying you literally, what you've done is you've brought my life back from the brink of calamity. I was barely breathing, Lord. And all of a sudden, you woke me back up again and you put my life back together again. So he restores my nephesh, my soul, and he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. The imagery is such beautiful imagery. I couldn't help when I was preparing this this week, I couldn't help but think about uh, my parents' house up in Wisconsin. You can put the next slide up. So I'm from central Wisconsin. And uh, isn't that nice? This is a picture from my parents' back porch looking out into the backyard. So that's where I grew up. And they live on about a half an acre of property in Marshfield, Wisconsin. And this picture was taken by my sister um, in July of last year. So for 11 and a half months out of the year, Wisconsin is a terrible place to be very cold and snow and all of that but then there's like this moment the eye of the hurricane the calendar opens up and Wisconsin becomes quite lovely and uh, the grass is and it's so green if you've never been in the north the great north in the summer there's really nothing like it like it's so green and so lush and you can't really see it but um uh, that cluster 
of foliage just to the left of those birch trees. Um, that's my dad's garden. He grows these tomatoes that are the size of cantaloupes. I don't know how he does it. But right behind that, if you see that little bit of blue, right behind that cluster, I know it's tough to see. My parents had this Olympic-sized trampoline. And, uh, uh, and so when I go home, we always go home in the middle of the summer to visit family. And a lot of times when I go home on a day like today, that day there, I'll go and I'll lay on that trampoline. And I'll just sort of stare up at the sky. And I'll let that, you know, in Colorado, the air is so, it's arid, it's dry. But in Wisconsin in the summer, it's like this moist, warm, refreshing, wonderful air. And so I'll lay there and I'll just kind of let it like bask over me, you know. And I'll look up at the sky and watch those big clouds sort of roll overhead. And I, it's the most remarkable thing. Like it doesn't matter what kind of chaos I can be in the middle of in life. When I go there, I sense like my nefesh, my life coming back to me. And I'll just begin to thank God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy and your love. Thank you that you're restoring me. Thank you that you're putting me back together again. Do you remember, uh, do you remember the 90s? Yeah. yeah, you were there. Remember computers in the 90s? You had to, every once in a while your computer would start acting stupid. And so it would give you this little notification and it would ask you, do you want to do a disk defrag now? Remember disk defrag? You had to defragment the disk, whatever that meant. And so it seemed like the right thing to do, so you'd click yes on it. And the little icon for disk defrag was what looked like a little Tetris kind of thing with pieces, like little blocks floating down. And the psalmist is kind of saying that God is like the great disc defrag of our lives. That when we come to him, what he does is he takes all of those scattered pieces of who we are and he begins to put them back together again. But the remarkable thing about what David is doing in Psalm 23 is that he insists that we don't have to go to central Wisconsin or to a monastery or to Cabo or to Cancun or somewhere to experience this. But because of who God is, Yahweh is my shepherd. Therefore, this shepherding presence of God, his limitless kindness that puts our lives back together can be experienced anywhere at any time. Notice the verbs again of Psalm 23. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Not he did it one time, not he will do it one day in the future, but he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters and he refreshes. All of them are present tense. The psalmist is like, when I come into the orbit of God, this just is what he's doing. Because he is this, my shepherd, therefore he does this. Are we on the same page this morning? Do you know that God has only ever willed your good, your flourishing, your well-being all the days of your life? There has never been a moment of your life where God had some evil design for you. You ever meet those people that are nice to you on the surface, but then you just kind of get this sort of like weird feeling that maybe they've got some little scheme behind them somewhere? That is not your God. And there are a lot of Christians who talk about God that way, that there are sort of two faces to God. There's kind of the loving God, but then there's sort of the other God. It's a little bit scarier. And God is not a multiple personality maniac. God is the single Lord of Scripture 
who is only ever and always good all of the time. One of Jesus' best friends, a man by the name of John, put it succinctly when he said that God is love. love. And love wills the good of what it loves. That is who your God is for you. One of my favorite psalms that I think says this so well is Psalm 103. Do you know it? Psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his, do you remember it? His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Later on, he goes on to say, Yahweh remembers how we're formed. He remembers that we're just dust, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with the those who fear him, that when he put our trust in him, that he proves himself to be the God who puts our lives back together. And do you know how we know this definitively in the scriptures? We know it in Jesus Christ. In the life of Jesus, do you know what you never see in Jesus? Guile. You never see guile. You never see hatred. You never see malevolence. Now, Jesus is stern sometimes, and he's fierce with people, but he's always fierce for the sake of putting things back together again. His frustration with Jerusalem, when Jerusalem rejected him, was born out of his heart of love. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Your house is left to you desolate. Why? Because you rejected me. You're only good. Jesus only ever always does good. And God, just so you know, has nothing more definitive or final to say about himself than whatever it is that's taking place in Jesus. So when we look at the story of Jesus opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears and, and, and loosing tongues that were bound up, when we see Jesus drawing in lepers and social outcasts and lifting up even the little children, bringing the children in and giving them a place front and center, what we are seeing is the very nature of God. John 10, 10, Jesus says that the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they would have life and have it more abundantly to the full. This is, this is what Jesus is here for. And some of you need to hear this morning that God is not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to hurt you. God doesn't have evil designs for your life. He hasn't set up the game so that there's some imminent catastrophe for you around the corner. God, he just doesn't do that. God is not trying to hurt you. He is trying to help you. And the flourishing of your life depends on your ability to trust that, that God is our helper. At one point, the prophet Hosea said, Israel, you're destroyed because you're against God, your helper. He's trying to help you. He's trying to lift you up. That is who our God is. And I was thinking about this this week. I couldn't help but think about um, uh, the first book of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, which if you've not read the books for the Lord of the Rings or seen the movies, you need to make that your assignment for the rest of the afternoon. It says Bible and then the Lord of the Rings. 
that's what I think all you need in life. But there's this great, there's this great scene in the Fellowship of the Ring, the first one, where the great wizard Gandalf uh, has sort of put it together that the magical little ring that Bilbo has is in fact the one ring of power. And it explains a lot of things for Gandalf. And so he goes to Bilbo's house to make sure that Bilbo gets rid of the ring before he goes off on his little journey. And when it comes to it, he says, he says to him, look, Bilbo, I think it's time for you to let go of this ring. And Bilbo all of a sudden becomes very possessive. He says, it came to me, my own, my precious. And Gandalf says, I think (laughs) that this ring is not doing you any good. He says, those words have been said before, but not by you. It's high time that you gave it over. And Bilbo becomes extremely possessive and jealous for the ring. And finally, Gandalf says to him, he says, listen to me. I am not trying to rob you. I am trying to help you. Trust me again as you once did. Bilbo finally entrusts the ring to Gandalf and leaves, and over the course of the story, Bilbo's humanity is restored to him, where in possession of the ring, his humanity had been collapsing. It's restored to him. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Trust me again, like you once did. I've been a pastor for a dozen years. I've been a Christian my entire life, and this I know, and I know for certain that when we begin to turn our lives and our attention and our devotion away from trust in the shepherding presence of God, who's only trying to help us, our lives begin to collapse. And there are no two ways about it. It comes through so clearly on every page of the scripture. At one point in Deuteronomy, the Lord says to his people, he says, see, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So just in case there was any ambiguity on what you should choose, the Lord says, choose life. Choose life that it might go well for you and for your children after you. Our flourishing depends on this. I remember um, not, uh, this was a while back, I was, uh, there was a couple that wanted to meet with me. Their marriage was in trouble. And so we sat down in the office and I started talking with them a little bit. I go, guys, tell me, give me the story here. Tell me what's going on. And one of them began. Well, you know, it all really started when he did, and she goes, well, yeah, but are you going to tell him about the time that, okay, but the reason that I did that, you know, was because, right, and it was like this, I remember sitting there just kind of watching them going back and forth, and you know, as a pastor, you're trying to help people, so I'm going like, where's the bottom of this swimming pool? You know, like, when are we going to hit, like, that moment where it's like, oh, this is where it all began. And I couldn't ever, I sat there listening to them for half an hour, 45 minutes, I couldn't find the bottom of that thing. It was like this sickening sort of cycle of mutual recrimination, and they were in the worst place possible. As I listened to them, I thought to myself, do you know what this is? Nobody gets in crises like this overnight. You know what this is? This is the byproduct of a categorical rejection of God's shepherding presence. Instead of living towards his goodness and towards his mercy and towards his love, you lived in selfishness and fear and anger. And at no point, even in, this, in the last 45 minutes, have either one of you shown a trace of the humility that might give your marriage a chance. Live towards the kingdom of God. Why are you living out here in the far country? 
Our lives depend on this. Are we going to live towards God? Are we going to live towards his shepherding presence? Are we going to live towards something else? And when I think about this, I think, you know, this is, this right here, this whole issue, this is the whole reason for spiritual discipline. The whole reason for spiritual discipline. And lots of Christians have real confused ideas about spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and solitude and silence and scripture reading and corporate worship and generosity and serving other people and all of that. They have this idea that we do spiritual discipline in order to make God like us more, right? I prayed a lot today. I feel really good about my relationship with God. Hold on. That is not how the game works. We don't do spiritual disciplines to get God to like us more. You know, the character of God never wavers. So there is no point in your life where you do sort of the and you just, we just got it just right. And God goes, oh, look at how amazing that is. A little bit more love for you. I'm going to let you experience just a little bit more of my presence. God, God is steady. God is constant, like the sun itself that does not move in the sky. Last Sunday, I took the Sunday off. We had some friends in town. And you remember, I know it seems like a distant memory now, but do you remember how beautiful last Sunday was? Like 65, 70 degrees almost. It was like, praise God that we live in Colorado and not Wisconsin, because it was 30 below there, I think, last weekend. <laughs> so we had some friends in town, and they went off to breakfast. We were watching their kids for them. And so I grabbed a book, and I sat out on the porch. And I read my book on the porch, and I just, that sunlight, oh, warming my skin, warming me down to the very bones of my body. And I, you know, because I'm 36 and I care a lot less now than I used to about what people think about me, I decided I'm going to take my shirt off. <laughs> there I am, disrobed on my front porch, letting that sun warm my belly. Oh, and I could just like feel the life coming back into me. That is what spiritual disciplines are. It's positioning ourselves to receive that which God always is and never stops being. And the sun did not warm my bones as a reward for me doing the right thing. The sun is not up in the sky going, look, he did it. He got it just the right angle. Finally, the shirt has come off. We're going to reward him with warmth. No, 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 no. The sun is what the sun is all the time. All I did was position myself. Do you know that's what spiritual disciplines are? I don't like love waking up really early in the morning, but do you know why I do it? Because if I don't do it, I'm a wreck. I need you, God before anything else happens today. Lord, you are my strength. You are my strength. You are my strength. Help me to love you. Help me to fear you. Help me to serve you. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. I'll wake up early and I'll open the scriptures and I'll say, I'll say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God, if you don't help me, I won't be able to love my wife today or my kids today or do good work today. My life is going to be driven by ambition and by fear and by a desire for revenge. And hell will take over my life if, I don't, if I'm not saturated with you. That's spiritual discipline. I hate 
fasting. The worst spiritual discipline ever created, in my opinion. But you know, I try it sometime. Give up a meal, give up two, don't eat for a day, and watch what happens to you. I know nothing like it. I stop eating and all of a sudden I go, Oh God, I really do need you. And I realize how much good behavior in my life is merely a byproduct of me having a full belly. I go, oh, I'm that weak spiritually. Okay, all right. Help me, Lord, 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 help me, Lord. And I'll get in that space of fasting and I'll go, oh gosh, Lord, beneath all of the hungers of my life is a hunger for you. Beneath the hunger of my life for for success is a hunger for you. Beneath the hunger of my life for affirmation is a hunger for you. Beneath the hunger of my life, even for food, which is just bodily comfort, is really just a hunger for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I'll get myself in that place, and I find that the Son, that his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which has not moved and will not move and does not change, all of a sudden, all of that virtue that is in the Son begins to pour into my soul. I'm turning myself towards the light and towards the life. Are you with me this morning? God has only ever willed your good. So my question for you this morning is this. Are you living your life towards God's shepherding presence? Are you living your life towards God's shepherding presence? And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. It just takes a tilting of the soul. Positioning. 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the middle of the day, learning to pray without ceasing, ceasing, praying the Jesus prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you'll find that the good shepherd will start to lead you back. Lead you back. Are you living your life towards God's shepherding presence? But here's what the psalmist knows, and here's what is critical to say about living your life towards God's shepherding presence, that doing so does not mean that your life is going to be uniformly amazing all of the time. Look down at verse four with me. The psalmist says, even though I walk through the what? Well, there's a chipper message for you. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we go from this idyllic picture, Psalm 23, 1 through 3, where we're laying on our parents' trampoline in central Wisconsin, right? Drinking in the goodness. And then all of a sudden, the psalmist pivots. Even though, he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as the old translation says it, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You know what I love about this? I love that the psalmist is perfectly agnostic as to how we got in the valley of the shadow of death. Notice he does not say, if I fail my way into the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear. Doesn't say it. Notice he doesn't say, if circumstances put me in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear. He doesn't say that. Notice he does not say, if you lead me in the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. He leaves it open. Because you know what the psalmist knows is that a lot of people in church don't know? That there are lots of reasons why we can wind up in the dark place. 
And there are lots of people in church who would tell you that if you're doing this right, if you're playing the game right, you'll never wind up in a hard place. Faithful people are just prosperous and healthy and wealthy and happy all the time. You know what the problem with those people and their message is? They've never read the Bible. Most of the people in scripture are walking through a valley of the shadow of death or coming up out of a valley of the shadow of death or on their way back into a valley of the shadow of death. Life on planet earth, if you haven't realized it yet, is fraught with difficulty. And being a person of faith does not inoculate you against that or protect you from it. So the psalmist goes, look, even when I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, however I got there, and sometimes it's our sin that leads us there, our own stupidity puts us in the dark place. Other times, it's because people are oppressing us and they're mean to us and they hate us because of our faith or our faithfulness. That'll put you in the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes, sometimes, we obey our way into the valley of the shadow of death. That we said yes to following Jesus. That we gave our lives to him. And all of a sudden it took a turn that we didn't expect. And still, however we got in the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist says, I don't have reason to fear. Why? Because you are And the same God who was the good shepherd of verses 1 through 3, who creates luxury for us, who disc defrags for us, who lays us out on mom and dad's trampoline, who exposes us to the sun of his love. That same God has not changed in the valley of the shadow of death. Which is to say that our flourishing as people of faith is not dependent on circumstance. If you didn't get anything this morning, I hope you got that. Our flourishing is not dependent on circumstance, not at all. It's dependent on the presence of God. And the psalmist is so convinced of this and so radical in his appreciation of it that this is what he says. He goes, when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not even just like barely surviving there. He goes, you know what you do for me? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What? You anoint my head with oil. Oil in the ancient Near East is a symbol of luxury. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It's like the battle lines are drawn. The armies of hell are advancing against the psalmist and the psalmist goes, God, what do you want me to do? And the Lord goes, oh, we're getting out the fine china is what we're doing. We're spreading out a nice tablecloth, our best tablecloth, and we're putting out the best plates and our nicest candelabras. And uh, give me your cup. The psalmist gives the Lord his cup and the Lord starts pouring some of the best wine. Glug, glug, glug. And the psalmist goes, that's, a, that's enough. I mean, I don't really understand why we're drinking in the middle of a battlefield, but anyway. Glug, glug, glug. That's enough, that's enough. Glug, glug, glug. Stop, glug, glug, glug. Stop. What are you doing? Glug, 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 glug. Down. Decides, do you know why God does that? Because it's just who He is. Luxury, abundance, life, even in the dark place. So the psalmist looks up at the Lord and goes, Lord, do you understand what's happening here? We're in the middle of a war. And you're why you're calling us to sit down for dinner? How can you do that, God? Have you lost your mind? And the Lord goes, Look, I understand what's going on here better than you. And these armies are nothing to me. 
And if you failed your way into this, it's nothing to me. I can fix this. I will put it back together because I am the Lord who heals you. God never stops being the God that he is. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, life is fraught with difficulty. But the promise, the assurance that the people of God have is that is that God is with us. The great Karl Barth, Swiss theologian, put it like this. He says that God with us is the center of the Christian message. It's the center of the Christian message. The great Holocaust survivor, Corey Ten Boom, said this. She said that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Do you know that there is nowhere that you can run from the presence of God? You can't get away from him. Just always, always, always there. And this understanding of God is clinched in the person of Jesus, who came into our skin, who walked in our shoes, who absorbed our alienation and our sin and our death and raised, was raised again from the grave by the power of God to establish our humanity in communion with God forever. The psalmist spoke truer words than he ever knew when he says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. This is just who God is. And some of the most profound times of our lives, Mandy and I and our kids, you know, we have been in dark places that would make your head spin if we turned, uh, told you about the things that were happening to us. And we would be, I, you know, when I think back on some of those moments, I think about how this is always the temptation when you're in the dark space is to let the dark space dictate how your life looks. And we would be in, there were some just incredibly horrible moments for us. And I remember like Mandy and I would look at each other and we would go, what's the best thing for us to do right now? This is what we're doing. We're making our favorite meal and we're getting the kids together and we're getting around the table. And even when chaos is raging around us, we are spreading our own table in the midst of this dark place as a symbol of the great table that God is always spreading for us. And now we're grabbing hands with the person next to us and we're going to say like we've always said, we said it yesterday, we're gonna say it tomorrow and we're saying it today, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Let's eat because God is with us and there's nothing to fear. And what I wanna say to you this morning is I don't know how you got in the dark place. Whether it was circumstances that pushed you there, obedience that got you there, or sin that plunked you there. God's presence is always devastatingly near. And his luxury, his flourishing, his will for your well-being is closer to you than your very skin. Turn towards it, yield towards it. It'll put your life back together again. I wanna invite you as the band comes forward, uh, as you prepare your heart for communion, I wanna just invite you to a moment of reflection here. Moment of reflection here. I want you just to think about the piece of this message that you need to respond to this morning. And for some of you, it might just be that you're feeling a tug on your soul to begin to turn your attention, your affection, the direction of your life, 
more to the shepherding presence. And, uh, and if that's you, just yield to that. And, uh, and there might be some of you here this morning who you have been away from God for a long time. And I felt this pretty powerfully as I was praying the, preparing for the message this week, that there were some who have been living their lives away from God's shepherding presence for so long that the journey back feels insurmountable and you're, you'd almost be discouraged not to do it at all. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to yield. So Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We thank you that your presence goes before us and that it's the thing that keeps our lives intact. And so we yield to you. We yield to you. I want to invite you to stand with me. And uh, let's pray this prayer together as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion. Say it with me. Jesus, good shepherd, for all the ways we have turned from you, have mercy on us. We have wandered from your green pastures. We have rejected your quiet waters. We have taken back our souls. Have mercy on us. In the midst of our every darkness, we plead, help us see your face, help us know your love, lead us to your table. Till the day when goodness and love drive us forever into your house, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.